Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. On today's episode, we're talking about what Kansas City, Kansas learned by implementing a prevention strategy focused on changing the physical environment. Joining me for this discussion are Vanessa Crawford Aragon, Community Prevention Coordinator from the Metropolitan Organization to Counter Sexual Assault, and Dr. Natabona Mabachi, an Assistant Professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Family Medicine. Welcome to Resource on the Go. Uh, Natty and Vanessa, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves? Sure. Uh, yeah, so my name is uh, Vanessa Crawford Aragon. I'm the Community Prevention Coordinator for the Metropolitan Organization to Counter Sexual Assault in Kansas City. And my name is Natabona Mabachi, or Natty, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center in the Department of Family Medicine. And um, I have been the evaluation person on all the sort of community level sexual assault prevention work we've been doing at MOXA, with MOXA. Well, we're so excited to have you join us. I've been um, having conversations with folks um, about their work and their evaluation of their work. So we're so grateful to have you both here today. And what we wanted to talk to you about is how you've been approaching your sexual violence prevention efforts through environmental design. Um, Vanessa, can you talk about how your community identified this approach and what it looks like in your community? Sure. So, and to, to center people, if anybody's familiar with the Kansas City metro area, um, this project is, is specifically in the Kansas City, Kansas uh, side of the state lines. And um, our coalition has been doing work in that community for a really long time um, and uh, supported by um, our RPE funding in about 2014, um, we started working on community level primary prevention. Um, and at the time, we didn't have any preconceived ideas about what those strategies should look like, how, what kind of approach we should take. Um, so with uh, Natty's help, we did a community needs assessment and, and really looked at, um, you know, what would community level prevention look like in KCK. And uh, some of the things that we found were, um, you know, a, a real lack of, of, of overall public policy related to violence prevention or violence at all beyond just the basic criminal code. Um, community members um, voiced uh, concern about neighborhood violence and sort of an overall um, feeling of it, the inevitab inevitability of violence that, that there wasn't a lot that could be done to address it. Um, but we also also identified um, some community strengths. People were really proud of their neighborhood. They were really proud of their community history. Um, and there seemed to be a, a real strength of community connection that we wanted to be able to build on. So um, that also happened um, it, it, 
the context of an overall community effort to um, address a number of other social determinants of health and Im improve community health outcomes overall. Um, so while we were making plans about how do we translate this needs assessment into action, we had other coalition partners who were doing things like encouraging um, healthy outdoor physical activity or addressing um, neighborhood infrastructure investment and like how the city addressed things like blight and long-term disinvestment in previously redlined neighborhoods and those kinds of things. So, um, and we had partnerships with some of those other organizations for various reasons. Um, and this environmental design um, approach really started to make a lot of sense. We could address neighborhood violence, improve neighborhood connection, connectedness among neighbors and connectedness to resources um, by partnering on these other types of initiatives that we're trying to make neighborhoods not just safer from violence but safer in general and encourage people to to get out um and and utilize community assets and, and talk to their neighbors and that kind of thing so that's how we started with that approach and so as you were working with these different partners what were your specific goals and how did you then approach your evaluation? So in regards to SEPTED, we had sort of three main goals or outcomes that we were looking for. So we knew from our needs assessment that community connectedness and cohesiveness was really important to our residents and they were a protective factor. So when you look at risk and protective factors for sexual violence, they were a protective factor. And so we thought this would be a really good place to focus on. So our overall goals in regards to um, introducing SEPTED into our communities, um, as it also made sense within the larger community goals was a widespread dissemination of SEPTED principles because a lot of folks didn't know what it was. So there's a lot of education that needed to happen. So beyond that ed education was then the ad adapt adoption and implementation of septic principles by community partners within the specific um, communities, environments, and contexts, but also adoption of septic principles at the local government level. So how are we talking about thinking about our parks? How are we thinking about our spaces and the policies that we have around those spaces? Can they align with septic policies? And then the third outcome or goal was looking for, out of all of these activities, an increased sense of community connectedness, cohesion, and perceptions of safety was what we we're sort of hoping all of this would lead, lead to. So the first two I'd sort of put under short to midterm goals, and then the long-term goal would be that increased sense of connectedness, cohesiveness, and, and perceptions of safety. With that, I think it's really important for us to sort of define what kind of septic we're talking about here, because they're actually different kinds. And there's been all kinds of controversy around this idea of crime prevention through environmental design, because one of the really important questions is, is it inclusive at the end of the day? Is it excluding people? Is it punitive policing that's happening with this? Um, so, there are really sort of three kinds of septed. So there's the first generation kind of septed that was sort of 
you know, invented by Ray Jeffrey. And it's all about sort of blocking crime opportunities by how we design our environments, territorial control, um, and all of those things through architecture, physical design. Then the second generational accepted, which I think is what we are currently doing, which goes beyond that physical architectural concern, and now starts to look at the conditions in which we live, our social relations, our community identities, our cultural identities, and how we can use those to promote connectedness, cohesion, and all of those, you know, those good things that bring communities together. And that then can encourage a type of community policing that is less threatening than policing from police, you know, if, if that makes sense. Um, but ultimately, especially when you think about COVID times, I think what we're striving for is this third generation, which is a kind of a new idea where we're talking about community livability and sustainability. So looking at things, um, how we using our waste, you know, how are we recycling, um, how are our communities energy efficient, how are we um, using urban informatics, digital information to promote resident, you know, community cohesion, right? And when you think about COVID where we're doing social distancing, all of that, this comes to bear and is really important right now. Um, and capitalizing on online social networks to help sort of further that goal of connectedness. Um, I think that that's something we're having to think about now and you know, we can talk more about this later, but I think that's where we're moving towards as well. Um, and so in order to sort of evaluate those goals, we have a myriad of tools <laughs> because we have never done this before. And so we had, we honestly, it was, it's all a learning process. And I'll say the needs assessment was super important. We have a lot of process focused kind of surveys that we implement. So um, we have a project that is very much related to septed principles called Stories Upon Stories, which is about um, using art to beautify blighted buildings. So we have a community mural survey connected to that. And we ask questions about emotions, feelings, perceptions of safety, things like that related to that. We also have when a community implements um, all the physical aspects of septed, a sort of post septed survey. Um, so for example, we have one community that did a park cleanup. Um, in, uh, it, it made lights, included lights in an underground sort of pathway that made it safer for children to cross, you know, the sort of underground pathway. And then we sort of surveyed the community at a community event. Uh, we do have an outcomes focused tool called the community checkbox evaluation system, which is designed to help us make visible our accomplishments, um, our purposes of improvement, helps accountability, and it helps us track widgets. You know, how many people attended this? How many people did we reach? How many people saw our social media forms? Those kinds of things as well. Yeah. You just dropped so much knowledge <laughs> um, for folks. Thank you for kind of giving the, the background and history of the septed model and how you all are are looking at these new generations of the model that is really putting community more at the center of of the work 
Um, so thank you for that. I know we've been having lots of discussions. We've got a previous podcast um, talking about that as well. So if folks want to hear more about that, I'd encourage them to um, to check out our other podcast too. So I'm wondering, now that you've kind of done your your first round of your evaluation, um, what, what were your results? What do you, what have you learned so far about the process? Well, first of all, I'll say that it's a work in progress. Um, and so right now in regards to outcome one and outcome two, so the widespread dissemination and adoption and implementation, I think we've done really well. And I think Vanessa will agree with me. You know, we have already hosted three 40 hour septic trainings for our community partners. And that is something that MOXA paid for. So, you know, um, we 70 participants from the community um, attended these trainings. And this represented nine sectors. We had law enforcement, faith-based, social service, advocacy, neighborhood groups, education, healthcare, businesses at the table for this training. So we, we really thought that was a success. We also then adapted that 40-hour training into a one-hour training so that it's more accessible for uh, smaller neighborhood groups. Because a lot of people don't have time to go through 40-hour trainings. Um, and so we were able to reach out that way to two neighborhood groups, one youth-based organization, and we continue to work on that aspect of dissemination. And then we also developed this amazing video explaining SEPTED. And we got about 7,400 unique social media views on that as well. So it's ongoing, but we think we're doing really well and that knowledge is spreading, knowledge dissemination is spreading. In regards to adoption and implementation of SEPTED, we have one particular community that has consistently been working on this within their community. So they have these park cleanup events. Um, I'll never forget going the first walkabout in the park and it was dismal. There were alcohol bottles around, there were needles, there was um, poor lighting in the underground pathway. There were bushes that were very much um, obscuring people's views and they cleaned all of that up and then they held an event at the park. And that event, um, we surveyed people and they basically indicated to us that they felt much safer. They felt much safer going around the park. They felt much safer using the public facilities at the park. And so we counted that as a, as a win. Um, and then we also have the inclusion of the SEPTED strategy in the five-year community health improvement plan. So we have a five-year, we call it CHIP for short, five-year community health improvement plan and SEPTED has now been integrated into that sort of local government plan, which we think is an absolute coup as well. Um, and then our unified government, our local government, uh, SOAR program has incorporated stories upon stories. Am I correct, Vanessa? Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna, I, I started to get excited when you talked about, yeah, I should have said earlier that I think that one of the biggest accomplishments that we've done is we, we've gotten our, our comprehensive, our community violence prevention plan is part of 
the health department's community health improvement plan. So it's a, it's a long-term strategic plan. Um, so we have, I think, been very successful in getting different um, departments in the city government to understand their role in violence prevention and to utilize SEPTED as a violence prevention strategy. Um, particularly those departments that don't normally work on violence, that they wouldn't normally think that like violence prevention was like part of their job. So um, SOAR is the, it's an acronym that stands for something, but it's the, it's the city's blight remediation program. Um, and so, you know, and those folks have been extremely, they, it, it, you would have thought that it would have taken more conversation to get blight remediation folks to understand maybe how they were related to violence, but it didn't, they, they understood it immediately. They were right. They were always on board. They um, had been very excited to um, partner with us on this art project stories on st story, like the story of the neighborhood on the stories of the building. That's, that's the, that's the pun. Um, but so they have been very enthusiastic about um, partnering with us to um, engage the neighborhoods around what do they want to see with these um, boarded up buildings that nobody's been doing anything with for a long time. Um, the parks department um, is, is um, now pretty involved and, and, and really enthusiastic. Um, you know, we've been having through the stories on stories process, we've been having conversations with like planning and zoning, right? You know, so um, it's been all part of this long-term project to get, you know, if, if we're going to be doing things in the physical environment, if we're going to be doing things, we've also, I mean, we've been part of a, another partners coalition where they're working on a, on, um, complete streets, you know, getting getting the city to um, uh, think holistically about um, street like transportation development. Um, so that it's not just for cars, it's for it's good for walkers or, you know, pedestrian cyclists, wheelchair users, etc. Um, so um, yeah, I think that we've, it's just been really great to, if we're going to be doing infrastructure changes, if we're going to be working in the physical environment, let's not just lock into, hopefully that maybe does something about violence too. Let's think about violence prevention from the beginning of that process and integrate planning, because we know, you know, if you're going to put up a bus shelter, put up a bus shelter with these certain specifications and it will um, make the it more usable and feel safer, right? And if more people feel safe waiting for the bus late at night, then it's easier for them to get to their job. It just, it, it has like a ripple effect that impacts other aspects of people's lives, including their experience of violence or, or likelihood to experience violence. So um, I've just been really hard. It, it took a lot of um, education at the beginning. Um, but now I think that we've like created this critical mass of folks in the community and people who are in decision-making roles in the community who understand these concepts and are willing to um, put some time and effort and resources into them. It's great to hear how you do have those decision-makers ma as part of the, the connection um, between all of the efforts and thinking about uh, getting to these sustainable practices. I'm wondering, um, as, as we've been kind of exploring 
this type of model with other folks, something that often comes up in the conversation is it often focuses more on um, violence that happens between strangers and not with those that you know or maybe live with um, or part of your family or part of your network. So I'm just wondering, have has any of you talked about the ripple effects, Vanessa, making the connections? Are you all seeing anything as you're doing your evaluation and hearing more from folks about what this has meant for community um, connectedness? about what it's meaning for people in in their homes as well or in their relationships um, more specifically? So that is that is such a great question. And I think we haven't quite gotten to that yet, but we will. And this is one of the challenges of doing prevention at a community level. Because we are moving away, if you think about the social ecological model, there's that sort of relational level, which is in the house or interpersonal, we are working at that next level. And with the goal, with the hope that whatever we're doing at this community level, then trickles down to the interpersonal and then informs again, the community level. So the, those two questions, increased of, uh, perceptions of safety, increased sense of community connectedness and cohesion, that's really what we're now trying to track as these other two goals have, we feel are really sort of more solid. And so now that we are partnering, for example, with the Community Health Improvement Program, these indicators are included in a lot of the plans of the subcommittees. So our goal is that we will have a chance to track this through housing, through parks and rec, through you know all of these other um, sections, and hopefully in the long term, a couple of years down, we will be able to get a better picture of what's happening at that sort of interpersonal level. But we definitely posit that if we're improving this at the connectedness and cohesiveness at the community level then it's increasing the likelihood that folks are going to be more likely to seek help if they need help. Folks are going to be more likely to say something if they see that something is wrong, you know, um, because those connections are there. And so we hope that this is going to bear out. But I will tell anybody who's listening is that doing this at the community level is not easy. In fact, for us as a group, um, it took us, I would say, a good year before we really felt that we understood what it meant to do prevention, sexual assault prevention at that level um, and evaluation at that level, and we're still learning. I really appreciate that. And thank you for talking about the connections between the levels. I think we're hearing that as folks are figuring out how to do community level, they're starting to see um, you know, we don't live in just one sphere, right? We, we live in multiple spheres in every moment. So uh, tell me, tell me some more about the, the lessons that you've been learning. Um, Vanessa, if we could uh, check in with you about that too. What else um, is coming up as you move through the process? Yeah, so I think that um, one of the lessons and, and um, Natty was getting to this point too is this work takes a long time. Um, and so um, it can be um, 
a little hard because you're like you you want to like start seeing payoffs really quickly um and um that doesn't always have you know the, like in order to like see how does how does improving um a neighborhood environment impact the people that live in that neighborhood long term you're not going to be able to measure that right away right you have to you have to let some of that time elapse um so I think it's really important, um, and I actually come from a, a community organizing background. I think it's really important to like build in um, those milestones along the way, those steps that, you know, so you can celebrate success, you know, man, when we got lights put, or when our coalition partners actually it wasn't even, it wasn't even um, our organization who moved putting the lights into the tunnel in the park. <laughs> Um, but our, our, when the health department and the first department did that, man, did we celebrate that we, you know, um, were able to get that done. That was a, that was a big deal that really, um, you know, impacted um, that area. So I think that taking a, a um, sort of neighborhood-based, coalition-based, how are we working together with our partners? How does, how does everyone know um, what our goals are, how are we transparent and accountable about how we're meeting those goals. Um, and, uh, you know, when something doesn't work, how are we transparent and accountable about that. Um, and, and so I think that sort of like helps you get through this like long term, you know, waiting for out, you're not waiting for outcomes, right? You just keep doing the work and you and you keep, um, uh, you know, fortifying yourself along the way with the with um, the successes that you're able to accomplish. And part of that is ensuring that you keep collecting as good a data as you can. Um, and that sometimes can be challenging because as we all know, working at the community level and using a sort of particip participatory base, based model um, sometimes makes it a bit difficult, but I think that we'll, we'll be seeing some changes. Definitely. And the other thing, Vanessa, that we talked about is that whatever you're doing has to align with the needs and wants of the community, with the goals of the community. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. And so that's why the needs assessment was so key in the beginning before we started doing anything. And that needs assessment took us a year. So when Vanessa says time, <laughs> we seriously mean um, time. So anybody who's doing implementing the work, recognize you need time. Anybody who's funding this work, building that time for your, you know, the people that you're funding, if you want them to have um, really strong outcomes. Yeah, and it's so worth it to invest that time up front and then having your needs assessment, it's something you can come back to when question, when you have to make a key strategic decision, right? And then as you all are talking about, you're looking at changing policy. We know changing policy <laughs> takes a whole lot of time. <laughs> and not just changing the policy, but being there to support that it's being implemented in the way that it's intended, right? Like that's where I think some earlier generations of SEPTED kind of went off the rails. It didn't always come back to the core community needs. It sometimes went to what was easiest or maybe what was more visible and not always um, what was going to make a core change in the community. 
I know uh, we kind of mentioned at the top, you're doing this work in the COVID environment now. And what type of adaptations are are you talking about or are you working through right now? Yeah, I think that the COVID, COVID has throw, just thrown a wrench and just everything, right? Um, you know, so one of the things we mentioned the Stories on Stories project, um, working with neighborhoods to put murals on, on boarded up buildings. Um, when we did that project last year, we did really extensive neighborhood canvassing in the neighborhoods where we did. You know, we knocked on doors, we, we um, had like a survey question about what people wanted to see in their, in their perception of neighborhood um, issues. Um, and we stood there and did it with people like on their doorstep, you know, and we talked to them, we, we um, invited people, um, we were partnered with the Neighborhood Association. And so we, you know, invited people to meetings to talk about it. And man, we just haven't been able to do any of that this year. You know, we would have spent a lot of time like, you know, with tables at community events and farmers markets and stuff like that this summer, and and we just weren't able to do that. Um, so some of the ways that we've that we've um, been trying to get around it, and I think that you know we're we're figuring out the same way that people in a lot of communities are. Um, instead of canvassing, we did a lit drop. You know, we we dropped a, a door hanger on people's door that had a link to a survey. Um, you know, that, so that so that people could do that. Um, we have been a lot more reliant on social media and the social media like of our partners at the at the local government too. Um, that's something that we hadn't relied on before. We had been very focused on face-to-face -face interaction, individual personal communication. Um, because I mean, and just as an organizer, like that's always like the best way to go, right? And so if you can spend your time building up a big Instagram account or you can spend your time, you know, in neighborhoods we spent our time in neighborhoods and man do i wish we had a really great instagram account now you know <laughs> so um you know we we have been um finding other ways we've been um relying a lot more on um you know folks like the neighborhood association or or the there's like the local business association and those kind of asking those partners to communicate with their neighbors um I'm not sure if we talked about, um, we had developed a, or we're in the process of developing, it's almost done, a um, neighborhood, a, a resident toolkit for SEPTED. So somebody who hasn't been to a training, doesn't know much about it, but, you know, so it's, it's basically a resource guide with some brief assessment questions that anybody could go through, identify what's going on and, you know, an issue in their neighborhood, and then have specific local resources. So this is the city department that you call, this is the information you give them when you call them, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, we had originally envisioned that as a paper booklet that we would go to a neighborhood association, talk to people about, and then they would physically go out together and do an assessment on like a Saturday. Um, so we redesigned um, some of the aspects of the toolkit so it would be easier for people to download or print at home or be able to use, um, you know, on their phone. Um, how do we communicate with people who instead, okay, everybody's not going to be all in one place together doing it, people are going to do it individually and report back. So how do we make both our materials accommodating for that and how do we communicate and sort of um, you know, train people on how to use the tools in that way. Um, you know, so we're figuring it out as we go. You know, 
Um, but I do think one thing that, um, and I, you know, I'm in the education department of, of my organization. And so I work with people who do a lot of school and other outreach. And one thing that we've been talking about is this does give us an opportunity to reach people that we might not have reached otherwise. You know, it, it gives us an opportunity to reach somebody who is more likely to, to you know, respond via social media as opposed to somebody who was going to come out to like a neighborhood event um you know on a summer afternoon um so you know i do think that some of this will make us stronger going forward you know we will have like a little bit more capacity and infrastructure to to do um you know non-face-to-face -face outreach and communication but it's a struggle for sure and one final thing that we're really having to think about is what is what does connectedness and cohesion look like in a time of social distancing right and how do we foster that in a time where i know um folks are are having this increased cases of social isolation loneliness and all of those things that are stressors that may cause um that are causing more violence you know in in many ways so that's a conversation we have to have with our coalition and we have to pivot and we have to respond to this time because we're not quite sure how long it might go we might have another shutdown um so we're having to relook at what some of these things look like for us in these times well i think it's a great reminder that our work often has to pivot for a lot of different reasons and if you're focusing on community health and community connectedness right now is a key time folks need a program a philosophy and approach like yours right now it's needed more than ever um, as we try to address those protective factors that we know as you said there's just so much stress and anxiety and isolation um, right now. So I'm glad that you all are being thoughtful about that. And speaking of being thoughtful, this is new for the field of sexual violence prevention. So for folks that may be interested in doing something similar in your community, in their community, do you have any insights to share or things to consider for some for someone even before they get started <laughs> um, about what what they should be bringing uh, bringing to the the top of the of the discussion um, if they're looking to implement something like this? Yeah, boy, do I! Um, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is um, our program is really specific to the community that we're working in. And we built it around the existing initiatives, um, the partnerships that were available, the organizations that were already working in that space, whether or not they were working on violence prevention, but, but partners that were already working in the space. And so I think it's really important for anybody who's looking at any type of community level prevention, um, but also specifically like environmental change uh, is figure out what's most relevant to your community. Figure out what the issues in your community are and partner with those 
organizations partner with those community members, develop a program that's responsive to those needs. Um, because if you just, um, you know, hey, I am more than happy to share all of, you know, any of our materials and, and lessons and what we've done. But I think if you just like take what we did in KCK and try and put it in another community, you're not going to be as successful because it's not going to be responsive to, to those community needs. Um, I think that thinking really expansively about who a partner could be, you know, um, because we're looking at shared risk and protective factors, because we're looking at, um, you know, really upstream factors, we've got great partners that are, like I mentioned, the folks who, who um, got always got to shout out my, my folks at BikeWalk KC, the folks who are working on like transportation accessibility. Um, you know, we've got um, great partners that are working on things like, like health, you know. Um, we originally, the health department, who's a, a long-term important partner to us, um, we started working with them, not because they were worried about violence prevention, but because they were worried about getting people to use the parks more because it was gonna be, you know, it was important to their other like health objectives. Um, so I think that um, not limiting yourself to to sort of the traditional um, anti-sexual violence partners, I think, I, and those partners all also have a role at the table, but 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 being, you know, um, expansive because you never know, um, you know, what assets somebody could bring to the bring to the table um, and, you know, really planning with those folks meaningfully. Um, another thing that I think is, is a good lesson, and I say this as um, a person with an organizing background who works at a rape crisis center, I think that it really helps to take um, an approach of the, an organizing paradigm as opposed to a service provision paradigm or an education awareness paradigm. Um, you know, so, so having somebody who understands community organizing, um, and also like developing your plan from a, we are going to build this together with the people in our community, which takes longer than if, you know, can we go out and check some boxes, do some presentations, um, look at this as a, we're a service provider, these are service recipients kind of way. Um, I think that that's an important um, lens to, to hold in this work. I don't know, Natty, what other lessons do we have? Um, one other thing you, you talked about was this idea of tilling the ground before you plant. And so I'll just say again, us doing the needs assessment and then we followed up with a readiness assessment. So you can do a needs assessment, figure out what people want, but are they ready to do it? And the readiness assessment really helped us focus on what was possible at that time and what people had the energies for and the space for. Um, and then we were able to grow from there. Um, so once you've done that tilling of the ground, that's when you bring in the experts. I think oftentimes people bring in the experts at that first part that Vanessa was talking about. And it's almost like they, they bring their own agenda and that might derail what the community actually wants or may obscure what the uh, community actually wants. When community knows what its needs are and its goals are, that it's at that point you bring in the experts, you have your clear priorities. So that's when we now start talking to the blight and remedial folks. That's when we bring in the septed training experts, you know. That's when we bring in the partners that will give us the tools to implement 
our strategies that we're we're wanting to and outcomes we're wanting to achieve. Um, and then for me, from an evaluation perspective, develop your clear goals and outcomes for accountability to community right from the word go. So you know that I created my logic models, etc. And we kept going back to that. And I created an overall um, prevention, sexual assault prevention uh, logic model, but then created specific, a specific one for septed um, within that, that spoke to the larger logic model, but also spoke to the specific outcomes we're looking for in septed. And if oftentimes community, communities may not be expert at, experts at evaluation, so get somebody in who understands and knows evaluation, but get them in from ground up and not halfway through or at the end and say, oh, by the way, we need to evaluate this. Well, thank you for both talking about community members as the experts of their own communities. And then the key elements of, I think, um, you know, we're lucky that there are community organizers in our field. <laughs> um, but I think it is developing a new skill set for some folks that are doing prevention work that maybe that there that isn't their background. So I think there's always more for for us to learn and bless you for talking about paying attention to readiness. I think that's often something that um, we skip over because of our sense of urgency about the work. And I think um, many of us have learned some huge lessons about urgency is not what's going to create the long-term sustainable change that we're looking for in our communities. And so really getting grounded in the core needs of the community and the core strengths of the community and what all of those partners, those diverse partners that Vanessa was messaging, uh, mentioning are going to bring um, to the process. And when you build these long-term relationships with non-traditional partners and you really put in the work, that also feeds back to particular, if you're an organization that, that does direct service to survivors, that ultimately eventually feeds back. You're reaching more people. You're talking to people who weren't talking about sexual violence before, about sexual violence. It, it, it um, is, puts more people in touch with your, your service provision, you know, the, your, your um, traditional survivor service um, uh, parts of your organization. So it's not, it, it, it's not um, this extra thing that doesn't have anything to do with everything else that you're doing. This fits directly into, and it, and it only makes your organization stronger in the long term. And I also wanted to add that this grant mechanism is pretty unique for allowing us to be able to do this. I mean, it started in 2014, and by now most grants have entered, ended, and it has allowed us to do the planning stage, to do the sort of implementation and trial stage, because this has all been trial and error. None of us had done this at this level. So what it has shown me is if we had more grants that sort of thought long-term this way, I think that we would be seeing really important impacts and outcomes from the work we're doing because it isn't cut short at a crucial point in time. And so I, I really enjoy that 
whoever sort of the folks who put this grant together maybe was thinking in a much more long-term um, way. Yeah, and that really is an important shift when looking at community level strategies, right? Well, I'm just so grateful for you all sharing about your experience, what you're learning, how you're staying connected um, with all of the different communities and different neighborhoods that you're working with. And I'm just really excited to see how your work continues to to evolve and grow. And I know our listeners are um, going, will probably want to have you back <laughs> in a year and talk about um, what what continues to develop. Yeah, that would be great. We'd be happy to. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. We appreciate your time. And um, again, just thank you for your good work and for helping us get more conversations going about this topic. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about preventing sexual assault, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org. For more information about the work happening in Kansas City, visit the episode resources at www.nsvrc.org slash podcasts. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.